0: listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long-term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, overroasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code, JDP10, that's JDP10 and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baron Fig, go to barrenfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Bill Fleckenstein. Bill is the president of Fleckenstein Capital, a money management firm that he founded in 1982. He's written daily market commentary since 1996, which can be found at FleckensteinCapital.com. He's also the author of Greenspan's Bubbles, The Age of Ignorance at the Federal Reserve. Enjoy my conversation with Bill Fleckenstein. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So the first question we'd like to start out with guests is going back to 2008. Up until then, we saw so many things along the way, which hopefully we'll touch on a little bit. Um, Mexican issues in 94, bond market, long-term capital management, 1998, or along with Russian crisis. Um, so many things along the way, but nothing was quite like 2008. Up until maybe now, so take us back to that time. what was going through your mind what you were doing okay
1: uh, that's a great question. I would like to answer that question by starting a little bit in two thousand and seven because I think it'll make more sense when I give you my answer so I had started running a short fund uh, in in early nineteen ninety five and made it through the the dot com craze and the collapse and uh, um, when we were in the housing bubble, uh, I knew it was a bubble and I knew that when it collapsed, it would take the economy with it. There was no doubt in my mind that that would be the outcome. The only question was when would the bubble burst? Um, obviously the Fed, in my mind, the Fed had blown another bubble, uh, which was the, which is what they did to try to ameliorate the effects of the burst bubble from the, uh, the, the dot com craze. Uh, they blamed everything on, on, on 9-11, but that wasn't really the issue. In any case, I had a friend who was a mortgage broker and he called me in about March of 2007 and said, first payment defaults are exploding. Yeah. I intuitively knew what that meant, but I'd never really thought about that. And I said, can you repeat that? He said, first payment defaults are exploding. Which, which meant that to me, the marginal buyer or flipper of real estate wasn't able to keep flipping it and the bubble had exhausted itself. So I concluded that, you know, that was pretty much the end of the housing bubble. In 2007, we started to have some of the, some of the subprime companies started to have problems. And it so happened in the fall of 2007, I was asked by McGraw-Hill to write a book about uh, Greenspan. If you recall back then, Greenspan was viewed as a bit of a deity, and his own self-congratulatory book, The Age of Turbulence, was to come out in January of 08. So in, in the late summer and fall of 07, I wrote a book, Greenspan's Bubbles, The Age of Ignorance in the, of the, at the Federal Reserve, and I went through the... News stories are the verbiage of the contemporary times juxtaposed to the FOMC minutes to try to show that how clueless Greenspan and the rest of the Fed had been during the dot com, dot com craze and leading up to the housing bubble. Um, and of course, you could only, the, the minutes are released with a seven year lag. So you can't, you know, uh, you could, I can only cover the minutes up to, um, up so far in time. And then I, the second half of the book was about the looming bursting of the bubble, um, of the housing bubble. So that gets us up to the beginning of 08, and um, in 08, I was short stocks. Um, I had published the book, obviously, and I was um, intent on capitalizing on the bursting of the housing bubble. Uh, I've been writing a daily column for, what is it now, almost... 24 years, so I was writing that, too. Um, And the thing that made 2008 difficult, even if you were fortunate enough to have understood what was happening, which many people did, was that they kept changing the rules. Um, You know, they decided you couldn't short financial stocks, and there was a whole list of companies that anointed themselves financial stocks like IBM and Winnebago and things like that. And they, you know, there was huge surges in the market. So even though the mark the market wound up being down 42% that year, it, there was a, uh, there was a lot of chances to get beat up even even if you were correctly short the market because of the in- insane volatility that that came and went around the the Fed programs and the TARP and the TALF and all that. So as 08 ended and the Fed decided to do QE again, or decided to do QE for the first time. I decided in early 2009 to close down my short fund because I felt that with the Fed doing QE, it would be virtually impossible to make money on the short side or it would take some time. So I closed my short fund down and gave the money back and um, um, I've only kind of really dabbled in it short selling a little bit, you know, in the last 12 years since that happened because um, as we all know, uh e- you know the the QE programs are successful in boosting asset prices and the economy gets dragged along for the ride but uh the QE doesn't work because if it was a pro, if it was a policy that worked they'd be able to exit it and we know that they can't because you know they tried and they couldn't and now we're on full-blown MMT essentially and um that's where we are now and that's what I was doing then so that's my opinion.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've heard you talk about Miller and others not necessarily making a ton of money on the short side, even though uh, you, him, and others have shorting equities, but more just being long bonds. And, yeah, well, and Stan is much smarter and wealthier
1: than I am, and he knows how to trade bonds well. I was stuck just being short. I, you know, I should have. I, I didn't have that error on my quiver, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned uh, quantitative easing, well, let's get into kind of the mechanics. So before t- t- 2008, the balance sheet grew organically through the open market operations, and uh, the balance sheet was around $800 billion. They took it all the way up to $4.5 at the peak. Now it's quite a bit above that, obviously. But there's been this debate that we've had on the show for a while now, part of the reason I started this podcast was to talk about this kind of this idea that QE is just an asset swap, and you know all this is is just swapping treasuries for for bank reserves, and it, there's no consequences to that. Uh, what's your view there? Well, I, well, I don't know whose feelings I'm about
1: to hurt, but that's total nonsense. Um, so here, yeah, I mean. The way that Greenspan created, inadvertently, he wasn't trying to, he he, uh, created the bubble in the late 90s was they held rates too low. And if you hold rates too low, too long, you can get a mania going, which they did. They blew the top off the mania with the Y2K liquidity injection, which was only around $40 billion. So in that period where I was running my short fund, I figured out that, that what the Fed did, when it, it, to the extent they were being irresponsible, which they've been ever since Greenspan got there, that meant more than the fundamentals. So I changed my whole way of shorting to um, I'd have to be really tactical and only be short around catalysts when the Fed was in kind of easy mode. And if they were in tightening mode, or if the bubble had actually burst, I could I could invest and add to my positions and things like that. So people like to put a distinction on, on what the Fed does because it's very, you you cannot give a ankle bone to the leg bone, to the thigh bone, you know, to the hip bone analysis of how easy money and uh, uh, too low of rates or printing money actually makes markets go up. I mean, well, you know, we can talk about the Fed buys the treasury from somebody and that person goes and buys something else and that somebody else buys something else and eventually a bank loan gets generated because people feel better. You can't know where the liquidity is going to go, but it goes into something. goes into financial assets generally, spills over into art and high-end condos if the hedge funds get all the money, that kind of thing. So people like to say that it's really not monetization, which is absurd. It is completely monetization. There was a distinction that the, the Fed itself tried to make when they instituted the um, repo program in the fall, last fall. They wanted to say, uh, well, it's not really QE because we got a term on it. Mm-hmm. Except they were going to keep extending the term, so it, it was QE. I think one of the reasons people like to make the distinction that or they like to try to argue that QE isn't really monetization and it's in the banking system. It's not going to cause inflation is because we didn't have a spectacular round of inflation in the wake of QE one, two, three, one, two and three. The stock market went up, but gold market peaked out in 2011. And and um, but the thing of it is, is they printed the money. It went places. It didn't filter itself to a large degree into the CPI, but part of the reason is the CPI is constructed in such a way, there's a chapter about this in my book, such that it's it's unlikely to ever show inflation because of hedonics, substitution, and other little tricks. So the CPI doesn't really measure inflation. We had inflation financial assets and a lot of collectibles and high-end things that the 1% Uh, wanted, but still there was enough inflation to harm the middle class because healthcare and certain other things, education, you know, prices went up. So I am, I am not a believer in the, in the idea that we print money, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really cause any damage because it stays in the bank system. That's, 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 that's an argument people can make, but it's not what really happens. In my
0: yeah, yeah, we've joked on the show how the Fed essentially is just kind of buying the debt from the Treasury, even though there's this middleman of primary right. dealers and this kind of uh system they've concocted, but essentially it's kind of the same thing. Now, going back to what you said about Greenspan and obviously the book you wrote and <clears throat> keeping rates too low for too long – Going to this that that next cycle we had right around 2011, 2012, 2013, there was this kind of outcry from people to try to normalize rates, to try to roll off some of the balance sheet, and then obviously that didn't happen. There was arguably maybe we had a recession in 2015, 16, but it wasn't printed as one, and then the, the policies were, were just kept in place. Now, is this just a, a, a Case of hubris and kind of just uh thinking that okay, we we you know we're in total control, we can micromanage this whole thing, or you know, how what's your view there? So that's a really great question. Um uh I'm gonna
1: answer that with a, on a slightly different angle. One of the things so what as this bubble you know, as I contemplated how I was gonna capture the end of this bubble, the third bubble in the last twenty years, thanks to the Fed, I, I felt uncomfortable trying to be short, even though I'd done it through the other two bubbles, because the sponsorship of this bubble, asset mania, whatever you want to call it, has been really brought to us by the central banks. I mean, they really own this. They really believed that the, they, they could get the stock market to drag the economy along as opposed to having the stock market be a reflection of the economy their you know twenty five dollar phrase the portfolio balance channel is what they think is what is how they described what they do and how that affects the economy so um, I felt that that they were going to be extra quick to try to ride to the rescue and being short would be tricky and you'd be You know, you might be able to make some money after the first break and then we had a bounce and they used some of their bullets and, but it was going to be much trickier in the past when, you know, the, the Fed didn't perceive its job to make sure asset prices went up. Now they wouldn't articulate it that way, but that's, it's quite clear that's what they believe. And as you can see how fast it took, how fast the Fed went to zero rate rates took rates essentially to zero and, um, rolled out you know, 10 bailout programs so they could buy, you know, junk bonds, munis, commercial paper, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the central banks really own these markets. And I, and, 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 you know, it's sort of like they're, they're sort of proud of, of what they've done with them or to them, but they're not really markets anymore. There is, there's no, I mean, you certainly, there's no price discovery really in, the, in, in the bond market. And there's not that much in the stock market. I mean, obviously individual stocks can bounce around, but um, you know, I mean, they, they have, they have, they have, they have sort of stomped on the ability to analyze macro variables and micro variables and the tape and all those things and put them together and try to have a decent understanding of what's going on. I mean, they've just, they've, they've they've sort of ended that game a a a clever fellow on twitter said there there is no game anymore you know no game of analysis there is only gaming the fed and that's really what the financial markets have now come down to so my view is that i can express my view of their irresponsibility and you know dangerous policies via the precious metals rather than trying to rather than being short having said that i think there might be a A pretty great, a pretty good opportunity on the short side sometime in the near future, but you have to approach it much, much more carefully than, than at any time in the past, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. And another theme that I've been thinking about for a long time or for (laughs) quite a bit of time going back to 2012 kind of range is, is can the Fed ever roll off the balance sheet? Can they kind of return back to normal? And that debate kind of heated up the past few years. And I think we kind of know the answer there is they've just kind of doubled down and now there's this sense of they can't leave QE once they've started. And I know you've talked about this before. You've also talked about two generations of investors that don't know pre Greenspan history and they just don't realize that. Okay. They just think this is just the way things are. Now we're, we're seeing, as you mentioned, the Fed come in and buy junk bonds through. The, through an ETF, which is actually the way I understand it, structured as an SPV mm-hmm. off balance sheet. So they're making all these type of, um, negotiations and type of things to, to try to normalize things. Do you see that continuing even further? I mean, there's talk of, you know, equity buying and things like that, but they, so far it's been kept at a minimum.
1: Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, first of all, they would almost assuredly buy uh stocks if they thought they had to you know they'd probably buy ETFs like the BOJ but i don't i don't think there is any any line in the sand anymore or, or any red line that they're unwilling to cross i mean once they once they thought that they would i mean once they admitted that they would buy you know junk bonds even if it's via, via ETFs i mean They 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 sort of believe that they are the they are the ones that have to prop up the system. What that what they never have any ability to understand is that we wouldn't need this level of propping up if they hadn't precipitated such a massive financial bubble when the pandemic hit. So you know they always managed to get a cover story when the economy was getting uh, trounced in uh, 2001. Um, in the wake of the bubble bursting then we had the 911 attack and that took all the focus off the fed so the virus hits and everyone everything gets blamed on the virus but the, the we would need all these facilities if they hadn't created such a massive bubble and 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 rewarded speculators and punished sa- savers such we there was mass speculation in 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 so many things so
0: yeah and, and let's go down the road of kind of the end game and there's been a theme on the podcast too of talking about this struggle between uh, inflation and deflation and there's a lot of content out there and thought pieces about that deflation is going to be here indefinitely and we have these forces like globalization or at least globalization before this crisis broke broke out. Um, but technology demographics leading to just kind of long term, Deflationary trends and you know, you balance that with all the money printing, all the QE, all the NERP and ZERP. And it's, it's kind of difficult to see that lasting in perpetuity. Um, let's go down that road and talk a little about, you know, how that could shift and how the psychology might change, especially at the long end of the curve. And, and if the fed could actually lose control of the long end, even with their quote unquote yield curve targeting.
1: Well, that's the $64 trillion question is, uh, what's the end game? Um, you know, I've never been a believer in deflation because I've thought and known that they have had a printing press. Now, in 2008, I didn't know, you know, when, when, before, before they really unveiled the QE and the bailout programs, we could have had a bust, could have ended in deflation for a while. Um, they used deflation as a code word for depression. We were going to have a depression. And the financial system was on the verge of evaporating. Um, and we would have had real honest to goodness deflation sort of like in the thirties, right. but it's not the deflation that's so scary. I mean, would everyone should love to have lower prices? It's the depression aspect. Mm-hmm. So now, now we have a depression because the, the, uh, government has closed the economy basically. And when, when it opens back up, there is going to be all kinds of changes uh and there are the unwinding of globalization the disruption of food chains and the need for people to raise prices in restaurants that can only run at half capacity etc there's going to be trem- there's going to be a lot of different pressure on prices to the upside and i i think that um when you knock a lot of uh of businesses out like in the restaurant industry there'll be less competition so they'll be able to raise prices and we've seen food prices go up the price of oil is obviously under pressure and and um but net net coming out of the other side of this there's going to be more more inflation i believe and more importantly i think you have a chance to change the psychology about inflation as long as people are not concerned about it um, even if it were to run a little higher than than it, it that ought to, uh, people can look past it. The CPI data is so bad that it they could that could help add to the loss of confidence about in the inflation outlook when you know it's still printing one and a half and people are experiencing something worse than that. So I believe that the outcome from all of these policies is going to be some variation of stagflation to inflation. I mean, We could see some pressure to the downside in prices, you know, in the next couple of months, you know, while things are closed, but they're going to be really big cross currents between what's going down in price, what's going up in price. The net net of it is with, you know, uh, a, a lot of, you know, people getting government wages and maybe not going back to work I mean that money's going into the economy but nothing's they're not producing anything so I I, I don't I don't fear deflation I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a possible outcome the end game though is do they lose to me it shapes up like this there's kind of a race so to speak to me eventually, the central banks will go too far and they will lose control of the bond markets because at some point there won't be enough people to want to buy the 10 year 60 beeps when inflation's running north of two or three and the fed's saying it's okay if it runs hot because we need to make up for when we didn't have it. You know, they, they've created this third rule for themselves that they need to have, you know, enough inflation, which that, that's, that's, that's nowhere in what the fed's chart what it's supposed to do. But in any case, um uh so, if they lose the bond market, then their ability to print their way past problems or their their first response to the bond market not doing what they wanted would they they'd probably put on some sort of yield curve control and uh you know if there was a change in inflation psychology, i mean after all, people have seen that the world's different. If you didn't, you know, there was a run on toilet paper, there may be a run on food and so you start to have buy in advance so the, the, this, the fabric of psychology has been disrupted and it could easily settle in a mindset of we're going to have higher price, price, prices for things in, in the aggregate for the foreseeable future and that could lead to, um, you know, people not wanting to own, you know, longer dated paper at the ridiculous yields that are that are on offer. So, but against that is you look to Japan and you see the Bank of Japan owns about half of the JGBs, and I don't know whether it's I can't I, mean, I can't remember the data whether it's two thirds or three quarters of the equity ETFs. They've monetized all of that, and 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 they could simply decide to you know tear up the bonds that they own and and have a swap with the, the Ministry of Finance. And say, hey, look, you know, you give us a 200-year piece of paper at one basis point, we'll call it even, which basically is tearing up the debt. So there's a race between will they be able to get to that state of cold fusion, which is the nickname for, you know, monetization and then tearing up the government debt, or will, or will the central banks lose the bond market first? I don't know the answer, but it's the single most uh, important, complicated, and interesting question that we that we can talk about from a macro standpoint.
0: Yeah. And you've talked about in the past how all G7 countries are kind of doing the same thing. So the, all the currencies, the, these fiat currencies are kind of worthless in a way. That's why we haven't seen a standout where like one currency blows up or something. And so, you know, you have that aspect where it's kind of a race to the bottom. Now you mentioned, uh, with the Fed, let's say, you know, long-term rates do start to rise and, you know, people, Ha, even have a hard time remembering not long ago four or five percent on the 10 year um and I remember having a savings account that was paying me five percent in like two thousand three <laughs> or four and then I tell people that some young people nowadays or or even doesn't matter the age and they they forgot it's it's been that right. long. <laughs> right. So um so let's say you know sometimes there's a hyperbole like okay what if rates go to uh, 17% like in 1982, 83. That's when my parents got their first mortgage. I think they locked it in at 17%. But you know, what if rates that was uh, that was was actually 81. 81. Okay. And uh, and then uh, what if you know rates were just to move up to four or five percent? Then, as you mentioned, if they conduct this yield curve targeting things, what if they were to like double the balance sheet from here, or even triple it, and just start buying all that debt? Do you think? They would be able to suppress those yields. Well, it all depends on the perspective. Uh, This is a
1: thing that people have a hard time understanding. Psychology and confidence are very important to getting away with these sorts of things. And as long as people are confident that it won't end in some, you know, uh, monetary, you know, won't end in, in a problem, they'll go along with it. But um, if if rates start to rise and they try to suppress it, that should inha- that, that that should only intensify the the market's desire to you know get out of that paper and let them own it people don't you know people that have only been in the business for twenty years just don't have any concept of well, if the, if the central bank wants this to happen, how come it, how could it ever not happen? Well, mm-hmm. there have been various breaks in the stock market that they weren't looking forward to have happen and, they, and which have happened. But think about this. When Paul Volcker, <clears throat> Saturday in, in October in 1979, they raised interest rates uh, 200 basis points on a Saturday night because he was serious about trying to break the back of the inflation, inflation and inflation psychology. And no one believed him. And to show you how much nobody believed him, even though he acted and would ultimately be proven to be the guy who broke the back of inflation, the price of gold from October um, to early January when it peaked out around 875 an ounce basically doubled. That's how much they didn't believe him, even in the wake of him jacking rates up. So you can go back and look throughout history. There have been moments in time where people haven't believed in the central banks, well, if people ever demanded that these central banks act responsibly, there's no chance that they could. So they could lose the bond market, and you know it, it could be all over for them. If then if they if they monetize, then when market doesn't want them to, then you get all kinds of problems: higher rates, uh, smaller, lower multiples. It's it's going to be a, it, w- it would be a, a real mess, um, and it could happen. Although most people can't even conceive how how it could happen.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned with Volcker, when he brought out that hammer, and some people talk about how debt to GDP was much, much lower than it is now, and part of the reason that that would be a lot tougher to do is because, you know, just being able to service the debt at those type of levels um, and to, to raise rates to wherever they needed to would just be not only politically you know, not viable as well. Obviously there's supposed to be a separation there, but it just, it would just make the debt, you know, skyrocket out of control. And then what, what would that take right. currency? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a complete nightmare
1: scenario because then the, then, on, uh, you know, the, by the time we get through this year, well, I mean, what's, what's the, the national debt going to go up and, uh, you know, over the, the next 12 months is it going to go up six trillion or four trillion? I don't even know. Um, and, you know, so we have a $25, 30000000000000 trillion national debt. And you start slapping higher interest rates on that. That really feeds, you know, the size of the debt. There's no way out of this except more monetization and trying to inflate away the debts slowly but surely. And there's so many long-tailed liabilities that are going to come to haunt people, whether you want to talk about, you know, uh, Social Security or pension plans Or state and local budgets and their pension plans. These things are already in trouble. And if, if we were to get to the point in time where the Fed was, I mean, having trouble monetizing things and those problems got snowball on top of it. I mean, you know, it would be really easy to have a very, very bad period. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't see how that they have any way out except for try to try, except to try to monetize and then tear up the debts. I mean, obviously, the the B O J may do that first, but they got a different hand to play over there than we do here.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned, kind of in the past, we had these bond vigilantes. You didn't use that term, but maybe kind of referring to that, and then. We talked about, or you've touched on in the past with the repo mini crisis that we had before this, uh, bigger COVID crisis broke out, rates, overnight rates, um, spiked up to eight, 10%. And there was this right. feeling out there where, okay, people kind of looked at that paper and saying, okay, no, the rate is not 1% or 2%. It's, it's 8% now. It's 10. Yeah. And is there a sense that, um, Kind of the old school bond vigilante type psychology will come back into play at some point and that psychology will shift?
1: Well, that's, that's a good, that's a good question as well. Um, see, I don't believe there are any really any bond vigilantes. There, there are only carry traders. And so back then when the bond market would kept back, you know, rates kept rising, even though the Fed was tightening, we had a massively inverted yield curve. So you couldn't do a bond carry trade, right? You couldn't finance, you know, you couldn't borrow at the short end and, and get a huge fat carry, but the long end because the curve was so inverted. So even short, you know, I mean, at the worst, I think short rates were like around 18, 19% and the long bond, I think the worst was like, like close to 16. So it, it, there was no ability to, uh, to, 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 to put on carry trades. So you had a smaller amount of buyers. This gave the bond market the name bond vigilantes, but I I like to say there are no bond vigilantes, just yield pigs. (laughs) If yield pigs can't play, then then the the market behaves and they get called vigilantes. They haven't been very vigilant in the last 20 years, 30 years. So um, uh, that's kind of how I I look at that. But the action in the repo market was basically because of the the combination of the rules that came out of Dodd-Frank and the size of the deficit, the dealer community needed that liquidity. Well, there was an example of a rate that the fed was trying to administer and it got out of control. So it's a market that didn't do what they wanted. And then of course they came in with another program. Right. But I mean, so that just kind of, that that was a, that was a a look at the rates were kind of at the wrong place. The, the, The market itself couldn't finance the government deficit at that rate without that repo facility, which is a way of monetizing. And so, um, now we've got an even bigger, you know, amount of uh, debt and, you know, even less money from a savings standpoint because people aren't saving much money because they're, they're chewing into their reserves. Um, so you have a situation where um, things have gotten that much dicier and you've seen a little peak at a, at a market getting away. From the Fed's control. Now obviously they've got they're pouring they poured enough liquidity in, they've got these facilities, they've got things kind of under control for the moment, but you know, we'll see how 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 that plays out going forward.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned how the plan is to inflate away the debt and kind of slowly but surely let's Talk about and try to explain that in a way that people can understand, in okay. an easy way to understand, because so I think that's a pre- pretty important topic too. Right. Now, I, I don't believe that they would say, or, or, or that I, I, you know,
1: they would. I the the, the 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 these Fed people, they view themselves as really that they're doing the Lord's work. You know, they <laughs> say mm-hmm. every problem that's come up.
0: They've talked work. about uh, global warming too they're trying to they're trying to
1: tilt at diversity and global warming that's 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 how that's how how good they think they are but in any case, if you could slowly you know raise the inflation rate and all of that so so that so that you know down the road if you got a twenty trillion dollar national debt or twenty five trillion dollar national debt and it's going to come due where well, you keep, you keep making the debt come due farther and farther down the road and you take the, the value of a dollar means less. So it, it'll, be, it'll be easier to have, the, to, to, to have the amount of money you need to retire the debt or to roll the debt by slowly, you know, basically depreciating the currency. Or you know, said differently, you have inflation, and you kind of inflate your way past it. Now, when you most in the past, when governments have tried to inflate their way or print their way out of trouble, the bond markets caught on to it and backed up, and buyers have backed away, and it hasn't worked. I mean, it's it's only it's all that tactic basically only works in you know G seven countries or other countries that are tied to the dollar or peg. So. Rates, you know, rates will will at some point. They're 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 basically the, the idea of monetization. I mean, everybody, you can remember when you were younger, you could buy when I when I was a little kid. I think a burger at McDonald's was 19 cents. Now, when I was really little, right? And so over time, the price of things go up, and it means that 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 makes it easier to repay the debts that you had when you know the dollar went further, so to speak. So
0: Right, right, that makes sense. And as you talked about gold, let's transition to to talking about that a little bit. And as you, we were just talking about the dollar is really kind of something that's in play in all of these conversations, whether you're talking about repaying U.S. debt, and of course, of course gold is denominated in dollars, or sorry, priced in dollars. How do you, how are you looking at gold going forward, and and that dynamic with the dollar, and those types of issues that people so, like to discuss. I, I you know, I that all all of the G7 currencies are all bad. They're all
1: doing the same thing. So there's no relative advantage. If you think the dollar will be debased against, you know, assets and the cost of living, which is to say another way of saying inflation, and you want to protect yourself, uh, and or you think economic events are going to cause even more printing and even, you know, more of the same thing. You know, then I th- the, 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 a way a sound way is to own you know gold or silver or mining companies that are priced reasonably and have good prospects of which there are plenty. Um, and you know, there are other things. I mean, if you, if you're if you've got enough money, you can buy high-end art, and that usually works. And maybe it will this time, maybe it won't. But but to me the precious metals are, are 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 the most straightforward way to go and it's the thing that the average person can avail themselves of in particular silver silver hasn't really had much of a bid thus far but at some point it will because eventually everyone's going to get the memo or said differently everyone's going to get the joke about the consequences of these policies um you know i think uh, maybe it's, it's, it's hard for some people to worry about the consequence of these policies from a debase, currency debasement or inflation promotion standpoint when, you know, they don't have a job right now and so many people are in that boat. But the outcome is going to be, is going is, is to be that nevertheless. And they're just a, a, a very good way to protect oneself and to potentially, um, increase your, your own purchasing power.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously, if this inflationary kind of regime were to play out, and obviously it could take time and a number of years, and there's different scenarios on how it could unfold, but being bearish on fixed income makes sense. You mentioned precious metals makes sense. Now, with equities, I've heard varying opinions. Some people talk about, okay, if companies that have pricing power will be able to uh, keep up with inflation. Where, where do you come down on that argument? Yeah, I mean,
1: it's possible. I mean, because there, it's so difficult to try to have any kind of an intelligent roadmap in your head because there's so many complicated variables to think about now. Yeah. About all the stuff the central banks are doing. But when you th- think about the economy, I mean, it's a wreck and now the politicians and the bureaucrats have taken control of the companies for all intents and purposes, most companies, and they're the ones that get to decide who can open and how they can run their businesses. So now we've got people who know nothing about business deciding how businesses are going to be run. So that's a problem. And you know, we, we, we know about how people, you know, certain businesses are going to be compromised anyway because people are going to be afraid for a while. So trying to figure out, you know, exactly what the Future looks like is, is, is very tricky because of all these major forces kind of, you know, going against each other. Uh, I think the highest probability outcome is some sort of stagflationary period where we have inflation, but we can't really get any growth going because the economy is so hampered. I mean, we, we we're in the process of destroying so many businesses and so many people. I mean, the, the idea of flattening the curve has seemed to have morphed into, well, we can't have anybody die anymore or we gotta have a virus. I mean, that's insane. Um, you know, but it is what it is, and now they've got control. So I I mean the economic outlook is 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 incredibly ugly but but complex nonetheless. You know, we could get lucky I guess and have some sort of a uh, 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 a virus, sorry, a, a vaccine, in you know sooner than seems likely, and that might help, but that's not going to fix the mess.
0: Yeah, and the way I've heard it described, which makes made sense to me, was talking about buying dividend pairs and stocks that pay you to own them, type of thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, so I I got off on a tangent. Sorry. You asked me a good question. So who are going to be the companies that do? Oh, yeah. If you have a sort of a a, a kind of business that has pricing power or you've got good unit growth capabilities, you know, you can do well in a stagflationary period, but there's a lot of industries that, that, that can't, right? And you, that usually leads to multiple compression and things like that. Um, so the period we're going into ought not to be a good period for stocks. I'm not the first person to make that observation. On the other hand, when you've got massive amounts of QE that can lift financial assets, they can go up even though the environment for, for, you know, even though the economy is terrible, stocks, which should be a reflection of that go up because they're responding to QE and they're not really a reflection of the economy anymore.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now you mentioned gold, things for extreme wealthy people are, high earners, things like uh, art, those types of things. Um, now, real estate is interesting because when you look at on the commercial side, there's already been some talk about commercial real estate not doing well and that's not going to be interesting going forward with more people working from home, you know, even restaurants and things closing. But when you look on the residential side, you know, I think that that could be an interesting asset class to look at. Um, One issue there, though, is let's say, you know, we've had these rates for so low for so long, and that's partially been fueling that kind of boom in uh, residential housing. And when you look at, you know, if rates were to rise, it would put, you know, pressure on that market. So how do you reconcile with, Rates rising, putting pressure on real estate and balancing that with, let's say, residential real estate being a good store of value in an inflationary environment.
1: Well, there again, it's complicated because, um you know, in the commercial side, obviously, you don't know, you know, you got this whole who's going to pay rent and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, we don't really we haven't seen the rates rise yet, so we don't know if they will. I mean, maybe they're not going to rise for two years. We don't know. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't longer think term, happen, but, but nevertheless, so real estate's got, you know, a few variables at work. And also, it depends on where you are. I mean, some cities, maybe the suburbs will do better than in close. Maybe some other places in close does better. It also depends on what kind of a city you live in. I happen to be live. I live in Seattle, which is run by a complete, which was run by a a group of complete idiots who know nothing about business. And you know, I think if you have bad enough management at the local level, you can drive people away. So there's a lot of other factors in whether or not real estate or the real estate that that uh, any person may be contemplating may be uh, a, 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 a good investment or not. Right? I mean, again, some. Some things look, are harder to figure out than others. And to me, gold and silver and the mining companies are low hanging fruit. They, they're gonna, it they, looks to me like they're a lead pipe cinch to work. Real estate's trickier for reasons I just described. Now that doesn't mean there's not some things that are absolute layups in real estate, but it's hard to just pick them out, you know, from my vantage point. So I'd rather find things that are, really straightforward that I can really believe in and they don't have to, they're not too complicated and I put real estate for now in the too complicated
0: pile. That makes sense. Do you have any thoughts on this divergence between the paper market and gold and the physical market that we saw? happen or a few months ago and there's been, I saw an article today about it with HSBC going to the London bank, but it was mostly in coins, obviously not the, uh, the big delivery bars, but do you have any thoughts there about the the paper market versus physical and eventually will we see more of a a divergence or, a um, and then being able to close that gap? Well, people in the gold market, Love to hate the bullion
1: banks. You know, the bullion bank's job is to, for XYZ mining companies, got gold or silver to sell, they call up a bullion bank and, you know, they get a bid on it and, and then if the bullion bank has a buyer, he can sell it to the buyer or if he doesn't have a buyer, he's got a hedge. That's their business. Of course, We've had various raids to the downside in the metals market, a lot of people have decided that these bullion banks, you know, they are they're in business to suppress the price of, of precious metals. You see all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And but but I think what the huge spread that blew out from the nearby contract to sorry from spot to the nearby contract that was a hundred dollars, a hundred almost one hundred fifty dollars I think one night, and it's been high since, was a function of the fact that. You know there, there there are arbitrages that go on between the physical market and the and the futures market, and they have this thing called EFP, you know, exchange for physical, and you could trade the physical market at night and swap it into futures and vice versa. And there were guys that did a lot of this stuff. And I think what happened was I think there was a feeling or there was an illusion that there was more gold around than actually exists. What that disruption likely showed us. Was that the, the 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 pricing on a daily basis was more a function of, of mine supply, and yes, there are big stocks in 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 uh, London, but they might not be as big or as accessible as people thought. And when the mining supply got disrupted a little bit by the by the countries that shut down due to the virus, that might have shown that the, the weakness in the system. So if that's the case. That means the metals market is, is tighter than it appears and that there's not an unlimited amount of gold, uh, that can be mobilized for transactions and all that sort of thing. That said simply, uh, supply, (laughs) demand might be quite a bit bigger than, than supply at the moment. I mean, people sometimes forget that the mining companies produce something on the order of 3,000 tons a year. Um, and that has to go someplace. Obviously jewelry demands probably been, has been decimated by the, the worldwide depression, but investment demand has, been, has exploded as people can see, you know, what the consequences of this are, are, are going to be. And if, like, if you're in Europe, you got a currency that's a mess because the whole apparatus is a mess. Meanwhile, they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, make administer negative rates. So you've got, You know, you got a lot of buyers around the world, even though the the a lot of people don't have jobs. So um, again, I I got off on a bit of a tangent, but I think the disruption in the futures market just shows that there's less available to be able to be mobilized or to buy than people might have guessed. The the environment's clouded a little bit because some of the refineries stopped. Producing and moving metal around was more difficult because it is because of you know planes and things like that. So there were some technical factors at work, but I think it was it was it was just a way of showing. It's sort of like when the repo market broke. It showed something was not quite right, and that's what yeah. this, I think shows is that there's 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 really more demand than there is for metal uh, at the moment.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Now let's transition and talk a little bit about just more broadly macro hedge funds in general, and and kind of the old school macro investors. You don't see too many macro funds performing well. There are a couple exceptions out there that I've seen, but there, there's been this sense of, as you talked about earlier too, this kind of there's no price discovery. The Fed and and central bankers and politicians are kind of in, in control of these markets and you have kind of this flood to indexing, which is you know, mostly cap weighted and the money just flows in. Um, what's your outlook for, for macro funds and people and someone coming up now, let's say graduating and getting their MBA or something like that, go, looking to go into macro and, and actually manage money. Is it even viable anymore?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, some of the smartest guys in, in macro have have had a tough go because, you know, when you when you analyze things that are out of whack and that leads you to want to be, you know, either bull or bearish, depending on how out of whack they are. I mean, you kind of have to assume that the markets are free to allow the right things to happen, and when the markets are so heavily administered, fixed income and um, equities, due to the policies. It, 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 there, there's a reason why um, I think macro hasn't worked as well as it might have because problems have been sort of suppressed or kicked down the road and and um, you know the between the um, you know the, the, the amount of QE that's gone net net which has anesthetized the fixed income market and by extension impacted real estate and and stocks uh you know it, it, it it's really it, it the, the markets haven't been allowed to work, and so it's been, been hard to figure out how things might unfold when, when, when markets don't really don't really work, or or they or that or the time lag of when things should matter to when they actually do is too long to really try to put positions on and, and try to capture it. So um, for the moment, or if the past has been that has has recent past it hasn't worked. I think things could wor- work better from a macro standpoint prospectively. But um but, 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 I don't, I don't really know. I, it's, I mean, there are some huge issues out there that ought to be able to be, uh, turned into profit and, and um, but exactly how that's going to play out, I, I just don't know. I mean, I mean, again, the easiest macro trade that I can see is precious metals. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, yeah, that makes sense, and I, and that's a that's a great answer, I think. Um, and when I list, when I watch uh, Real Vision videos, and I know a lot of the audience here watches a lot of those videos and and watches hears you on other podcasts and people in similar circles, that's the kind of theme, and it makes the most sense. And as you said, it's kind of the low hanging fruit. There's yeah, and, and like when you see guys that are really really good macro guys and great skilled
1: traders like Paul Jones. Um, you know, when they say well, it's, it's been a difficult period, you know, uh, up till recently, I mean, that says it all. It's not like they got any less smart or any less skilled. It's a function of the environment. And uh, when guys like that have trouble operating in, in, in that sort of way, it tells you how difficult it is.
0: Yeah, and I think the last question there on, on gold, when you see it as being kind of low-hanging fruit and you see – you can i can name 10 high profile uh not only macro people but other investors that are bullish on gold and that have talked about it in their newsletters and, and different types of media um now you balance that on the other side of central bankers and and if you call up your local wirehouse they they won't even mention the word uh, gold, even though it was funny to see that Bank of America, uh, target of 3000 saying, Oh, well, the Fed can't print any more of it. And I saw your, your tweet. I was like, yeah, no, no duh. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But so you, I'm obviously there's a huge group of people, RIAs, wirehouses where, the, you know, there's no messaging of gold. But I, when you balance that on the other side of the, the top people in the space, um, what, why is it that what, that the price ha- hasn't, um, well, the price that has uh, you know come up a bit, but I think right. you understand the question there. Right.
1: Well, it's because if you take a step back, if you've been a if you've been let's say you've been a believer in the cult of equities, just to say it in a kind of a fun way. If you had thought the Fed were pursuing the right policies, or thought they were pursuing the wrong policies, but you knew how to game it, you've basically had twenty years. With like, you know, like one year and that was 08, um, of trouble since, since 01. Okay, so that's 19 years and one bad. So people have been trained, the muscle, the financial muscle memory is that, well, the, the, these things just work and those people that worry about problems, you know, yeah. they get their assets taken away and the people that believe that everything's going to be fine or these policies work. They get the assets. So the money flows to the people that believe what's going on. That's why when you get a bubble going, it always gets bigger and bigger and bigger before it finally tips over because you get a, it never unwinds when people think it should. And in the beginning, some people that are naysayers come to believe it. So, you know, it, well, sorry.
0: Well, well, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, lastly, I just wanted to say thanks so much for your time, Bill. I wanted to give you a chance to plug your research and tell people about where they can find you and and, more you, and read more of your work.
1: So I have a website called FleckensteinCapital.com. Well, that's the URL, FleckensteinCapital.com. And I write a column, daily column, and I answer questions. And uh, it's kind of expensive. It's a grand total of 10 bucks a month. I priced it deeply when I first started the site back in 03. Before that, I'd written for other places, um, so that everybody could afford it. And, uh, I didn't, I, I, I did it as much for discipline for myself, uh, and to help people. So that's, 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 that's what my site is. And I got, uh, I sometimes post stuff on Twitter, but, but not necessarily on a regular basis.
0: Great. As you mentioned, you've been writing for over 25 years, I think you said it was. So we're well, going to... Started in 96, so, you know... Oh, okay. 91. And uh, we're going to link that in the show notes. We're going to link uh, your Twitter handle and a couple other things, a couple of your other appearances, uh, Jesse Felder and a couple others. And we um, really appreciate your time today. And um if uh, the paradigm ever does shift and... How many years into the future, if if we're still on air, we'd love to have you back and uh, do a victory lap.
1: Yeah, well, I'm happy to come back and talk about things when uh, we get a a change in the the current um, uh, mentality. Thanks, Bill. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.